Hello, this is EIU Innovate. I am Ryan Hendrickson, the Dean of the Graduate School. We are here for episode four on October 12th, 2017, and I'm very happy to have with us Dr. Kathleen O'Rourke. Dr. O'Rourke has been at Eastern Illinois University since 2001. She is a full professor in the School of Family and Consumer Sciences. She's also the graduate coordinator of the graduate program in aging studies. And like so many of our previous guests, um, Dr. O'Rourke has an extensive record of working with graduate students, uh, graduate publication record, and in my view, clearly as an EIU innovator. So I'm very, very happy that we're um, able to have her today as a guest. Dr. O'Rourke, welcome to EIU Innovate. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What an honor. I'm so happy you're here. I think we're going to have a fun time. Oh, definitely. All right. Well, let's start off with talking a little bit about your role at EIU. Um, you've been here since 2001. Mm -hmm. What brought you to EIU? And um, tell us also about your role as a graduate coordinator of the graduate program in aging studies. Well, I first came to EIU in 1990 as an undergraduate student, and so I completed my bachelor's degree in then home economics, now family and consumer sciences, and then I stayed on for my master's degree. After that, I went off to the University of Tennessee for my doctorate, taught there for a few years, and there were job offers along the way after I graduated, but I was always holding out hope that a position would open up back at EIU. I loved my years here as a student, and when the opportunity opened up for a faculty position, I jumped on that, I applied, was offered the position, and what an honor it is to come back and teach at our fine institution of higher education. It is a privilege, and I tell students this every semester, it's a privilege to come back here and teach and give back to a university that gave me so much as a student. So you are a true true life panther oh yes bleeding mm -hmm. blue yes yes indeed and then uh, in terms of my role as graduate coordinator now I'm starting my third year as the graduate coordinator of aging studies and really have embraced the leadership role in a supportive team atmosphere and you know as I was reflecting on today and thinking about what makes this work it's the team it's the faculty the administrators my graduate assistants and doing our best to be responsive to the needs of our students and the changing demographics. Aging Studies has been in existence at EIU since the 1980s. We were formerly known as the Master of Arts in Gerontology, changed our name to Aging Studies a few years ago, changed our format to online to be more responsive to student needs, and we're an interdisciplinary program housed in family and consumer sciences and made up of six different academic units on campus. So you're one of the few graduate programs at EIU that is truly interdisciplinary. Yes. And mm -hmm. you said you just work with six different uh, units or departments. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit about that. How do you coordinate that leadership role? And what are the departments that feed into aging studies? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, Family and Consumer Sciences administratively houses the program, and the other departments are Communication Studies, Health Promotion and Leadership, uh, Kinesiology and Sports Studies, Psychology, and Secondary Education. 
And so it uh, making this work, because that's a lot of individuals to bring together, making this work um, is really helped by our Aging Studies Board that convenes once each semester. It brings together administrators, faculty uh, in one room where we can have status updates, we can brainstorm new initiatives, I can get feedback. And so communication is really key in all of this, um, making sure that everyone's on board. So yeah, it's really important to have everyone on board with part of the team because it's certainly not my program, it's truly our program. And so the collective, um, you know, putting the minds together, so to speak, um, the collective nature is what makes aging studies work and continue to grow. So tell us a little bit about a student in aging studies. You know, I'm envisioning mostly that a student will be learning about the aging process mm -hmm. and what it's like to be a senior in, and maybe living in different places and how your life will change. And maybe that's all encompassed in the degree. But can you tell us a little bit more about um, what your students will be learning in aging studies and then maybe what kind of jobs do they get when they leave and finish your program? Oh, sure, sure. Right now our students, um, they it, it's a mix with being online. So I have some students who are residential living on or near campus, but then I have over half of my students who live at a distance because it's an online program and they're working full time largely in the field of aging already. And so some of the different examples or what um, you know a student profile might look like, our students have recognized that the aging demographics are booming in, in our country. Right now we have 46 million people who are ages 65 and older. By 2060 we will have 96 million people. Our fastest growing age segment is the 85 plus group. And so students who seek out aging studies have recognized that we individually as professionals and collectively as a society need to be responsive to the growing demographics, the needs that are specialized in aging and older adulthood, and the needs of caregivers to be supportive with programs and resources and specialized care that goes into that later end of the lifespan. Um, you know, in years past, we sometimes, as a society, mistakenly thought, well, you get older, you become frail, you become sick, and then it's off to a nursing home. And that has really changed. Residential um, home-like care or helping people age in place in their own homes, that is currently the trend, and that is what we'll see in the future. Our students, um, in terms of examples of what they might do, I have a graduate who's an administrator of a long-term care program. I have another student who's working in adult protective services. I have a current student who she's about to graduate in December. She will take over as the service coordinator for a residential uh, apartment complex that serves people 62 and older. And she'll graduate in December and in January she'll start as the service coordinator there. So it's a variety of programming and services out in the community and being responsive to, to the aging needs and demographics. Yeah, there's such a major demographic mm -hmm. shift in what's mm -hmm. happening and so many older people who are living much longer, very mm -hmm. fulfilling, um, active mm -hmm. lives, mm -hmm. and it's really incredible to see this change. 
So are you familiar with Blue Zone? Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they got this, they tweet out and they've got a book. Oh, yes. My wife's totally into this Blue Zone and all these tips mm-hmm. for living longer. Mm-hmm. So what what do you think about the Blue Zone stuff and, oh. and, and living longer? And <laughs> what would you advise if... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a young, uh, say, 48-year-old. Mm-hmm. What, what would I want to do to advance and, and to continue to live a long, healthy, productive life? Well, sure. You know, the whole concept of Blue Zones was started by uh, a reporter for National Geographic who accidentally stumbled upon these pockets of people throughout the world who were living until the age of 100 and beyond. And so he became fascinated with the question of why. Why, why is life different in places like Sardinia, uh Italy or Loma Linda, California. And so as he began along with a team of others, some really in-depth study, what he found and what I would say to the 48-year-old person wanting to to embrace these changes, nutrition, you know, it's kind of going back to the Mediterranean diet principles. If you can't um, plant it or kill it, you shouldn't be eating it. So, <laughs> no Snickers bars, in other yeah, words. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, trying to you know steer away from all those processed foods and shopping that outer perimeter of the grocery store, your meats, your vegetables. Um, so it's it's diet. Uh, it is also fitness and exercise, and that doesn't mean you have to join some expensive you know, gym program. Those can be great for some, but hey, walk out your front door and, and walk. Um, so it's exercise, it's nutrition, it's socialization, it's people. It is not isolating oneself, but instead seeking out opportunities to spend time with people in conversation, in different activities. Um, it's a mindset of seeking balance, and for some that's religion, for some it's spiritual, for some it's simply, you know, connecting with the, the elemental things in life that we get too busy because we're so in, entrenched in our planners every day and where we have to be next. And it's taking time to really slow down and appreciate, you know, the, the wonderful moments in a day with people. Um, and it's, it's taking care of recognizing that we only have one body to live in and, and recognizing let's take a holistic sense of care of that. Okay. Well, let's talk about Kathleen O'Rourke now specifically. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your research. Mm-hmm. What are you working on? What are you excited about? Mm-hmm. And maybe some of your recent publications that you'd like to share. Oh, sure, sure. Well, um, my research focuses on two different areas, aging studies, of course, being one. And so an ongoing project that I've had over the years, it is looking at how older adults with dementia are portrayed in children's literature. When there's a diagnosis of dementia, let's say maybe Alzheimer's disease in a family, we need to support we need to find supportive resources for the whole family and that includes young children too so children's books can be a great teaching tool for helping them understand and process what's going on in a family and children's literature has done a good job over the last couple of decades at including older adults and so one of my studies looks at how those older adults with dementia are portrayed What are the demographics, like age, gender? Um, Are the children's books giving an accurate portrayal of dementia? Is it developmentally appropriate for the 
five-year-old or the the ten-year-old and so that's been a real interest of mine for over 20 years now really since um, my passion and love for aging combined with my past experiences working with early childhood and focusing on child development so it's a way to bring the two interests together in the form of looking at intergenerational relationships we need an interdisciplinary podcast coming up here because <laughs> Dr. Bredo Nathan previously spoke about Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and Dr. Jay Bickford on our first episode talked about uh, more trade books, but trade books for high school, but still children. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it's all coming together here oh, in yes. this particular podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us what else are you mm-hmm. working on? Oh, sure. Another interest of mine, um, as you we talked about briefly the other day, has to do with consumer research. And so being a part of family and consumer sciences, I work alongside faculty who have specialty in consumer education, merchandising. And so a few years ago, I was invited to be part of a team that looked at uh, the Black Friday shopping trend. And, you know, media portrays sometimes the worst of the worst. So the chaos of a day like Black Friday, which is the day after Thanksgiving, when a a number of people choose to go shopping, sales are booming, and the hope of the industry is that the profits will be in the black. And so we set out to look at consumer behavior on this day. We looked at inline behavior while people were lining up and waiting to get in the stores. Did you stand by? Did you stand by the lines and watch? Oh, them? yeah. We had a team of anywhere from twenty to forty students who were spread out at shopping malls uh, across the state and a couple couple of them out of state. So were they all up at six a.m. and oh, seven yes. a.m. at uh, they were all up, the stores. They, we had prepped them. We had our pre-service um, training meetings with them. They had been trained on observational research, safety. Uh, you know, we'd done practice runs with them. So it was a, a pretty, uh, you know, logistically sound uh, kind of project we put together here. So it was myself, Linda Simpson, Lisa Moyer, Katie Shaw, Deborah Reefsteck. So it was a collection of faculty working with, with students. So, yes, they would get up dark and early and be in those you know parking lots watching people wait to get in different stores whether it was your big box retailers like a best buy or your shopping malls did any of them them say dr rourke do we really have to get up at 6 a.m on friday of thanksgiving (laughs) week you know they voluntarily did this and so they they said we recruited but they signed up there was no you know there was no grade attached to this this is something that they chose to do beyond their classes true eiu innovators right oh yes definitely so what we found was yes there were sometimes examples of chaos and disarray but largely behavior was very positive. There were not many instances of aggressive behavior. And what we found was it was it was of course about the shopping and getting the detail or the deals, but it was also about people doing something together. So families, friends, their communication patterns, their strategies, the teamwork. Hey, you go to aisle six and I'll get this in aisle nine. And so it was really a form of, of bonding and a day of fun for people there were such few instances of aggressive behavior of course media you know picks up on the few and runs with that um, in some instances but overall you know we found it to be a, a highly engaged positive day of typically people 
engaging in an activity they seem to love. Well, that's a pretty, that's a fascinating finding. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, you know, too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thinking of the whole family bonding at, oh, yeah. at 8 a.m. out at Target right, as they're all carrying right. bags and bags <laughs> of things. You, but you're right. You think of back Black Friday as this just this complete chaos mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. nightmare. And many people say, I don't want anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. I'm staying out of these stores. And especially now, they're thinking maybe Cyber Monday or, oh, a, yes. you know, mm-hmm, I'll just go mm-hmm. online and do it. But that's pretty interesting finding that you actually found bonding and good family positive experiences at oh, that time. Oh, we did. We did. And I was brought in. I, I've taught research methods for a long time. So I was brought in on the team mainly for the survey development. And then I had past experience in observational research from my days in Tennessee. And so I was a key part of the observational training for them. So that was my role. Okay. I asked this of all our guests on EIU Innovate. So when do you write? Mm-hmm. And when's your most productive time, and uh, how do you make it happen? Mm-hmm. Usually on Fridays, uh, and y- you know, you- you'd always like to write more, but you really have to carve out that time and be committed to it. It's easy to put writing uh, on the back burner, and you-, you typically learn that early in your career. If you don't make a conscious effort to carve out that time, it's simply not going to happen. Schedules can be eaten up pretty quickly. So usually on Fridays, I try to have longer blocks of uninterrupted time. And before that, usually I've been brainstorming and kind of keeping a running list. Sometimes when I'm at workshops or conferences or in meetings, you know, if my mind wanders, that's a good time to jot down some innovative idea that I have. And so I keep a running list of those. And then when it comes time to actually sit down and do the writing, I put together paragraphs on different subtopics and then I put them together almost like I'm putting together a puzzle and I've used this approach since way back when I was doing my master's thesis. Let's put together some chunks and then fit it together like a puzzle and then I need to allow some time for editing of course you know the rereads that that happen Um, so yeah so usually it's the end of the week beginning of the week I'm usually diving into whether it's graduate coordinator business, grading papers that have come in uh, over the weekend. So Fridays are typically my day. (laughs) Do you have a favorite publication of yours? It would reach back to my dissertation days. Um, So a favorite publication or favorite finding. For my dissertation research, I did uh, behavioral analysis. I looked at older adults' behaviors in the presence uh, and then during the absence of young children. For a couple of years in Tennessee, I worked at a hospital and I coordinated a creative arts intergenerational program where we had an adult day program for older adults with different types of dementia and then we had a child care center on site. And so I would bring these two groups together with the work of, of the staff team And what we would notice, the older adults who sometimes were pretty disengaged because of their dementia, when the children would come, they would come alive. They were engaged. They were talkative. They were like different people. So we created this formal program, and then I turned that into my dissertation research and did that comparison of 12 specific behaviors when children were present and absent. 
And basically, um, what I found was there were more smiles, laughs, eye contact, uh, conversation happening, and they just came alive. And so later when we concluded this this study, my then major professor and I um, had a publication in the, the Journal of Intergenerational Relationships. And so I'm always most proud of that because not only were these older adults and young children part of my research sample, but I also was committed to them as people and making the most of meaningful engagement at a time in life when sometimes society says, oh, you know, you're, it's okay for you to still be a part of things, but what do you really still have to offer us? And I tell you, those older adults, they could light up the lives of these young children who were four and five and vice versa. That's a really interesting finding on both ends, the children benefit, mm -hmm. the older people benefit and what a cool finding too that you could that's such a practical research question that uh, assisted living facilities or whatever mm -hmm. could could implement as part of their daily activities for their uh, clients or oh, yes. residents mm -hmm. and at some places across the country there are formal intergenerational programs like up in libertyville illinois there's a medical center that has a shared site adult day program and child care program virginia tech has long been a leader in intergenerational programming so there are those formal settings but then there are also the more informal or the once a year like the grand pals um, when there are letter writing exchanges that happen between a second grade class and people living in a supportive living community. Uh, or it's the readers who go into our primary schools um, who are largely older adults. It all started back in the 1960s with the creation of the foster grandparent program and older adults going into the schools to serve as teaching assistants in the classroom. And from there, the intergenerational programming um, idea was born, and we've seen a number of, of widely successful programs uh, created. Now, I wonder if these programs would have a similar result if, uh, when they use these therapy dogs. Now, I know a lot of mm -hmm. um, facilities like this, they'll bring in pets mm -hmm. or, and animals and sometimes the patients respond very very favorably mm -hmm. and I know a lot of universities actually have therapy dogs around midterms or final exams and people just kind of light up and Mm -hmm. come alive and feel so much better mm -hmm. is have you seen research on that area and is it's probably similar to what mm -hmm. your research findings are it's very similar and my first introduction to that was also when I was working at the hospital in the adult day program so we had pet therapy that would happen with specially trained um, dogs and cats that would come into the program and then we also um, another spin on that is art therapy so we had an art therapist who would come in so yes if we look at the literature and then we look at um, the observations that have happened, we see a difference in behavior slanted largely toward the positive side when these kinds of therapeutic interventions happen, whether it's uh, intergenerational programming, pet therapy, art therapy. Okay. You are also a triathlete. One of the, there's not too many faculty, although there's another, I know another faculty member who's a triathlete, but I know you did one this summer in Chicago, and mm -hmm. maybe you've done some others. I think you have, actually. How did you get involved in triathlons? Mm -hmm. And just how do you balance that with your, you know, you're a graduate coordinator, you are a researcher, you're a teacher, 
how do you now do triathlons? Sure, sure. Well, thanks for asking about that. It's one of the coolest things that happened this year was the Chicago Triathlon. It was a big goal of mine for a couple of years, and to actually have it happen meant so much, and for my family and friends to share in it and be there. I have loved sports my entire life. I was one of those little starting at six-year-old hotshot softball pitchers, and you know, my dad and I, we would throw the ball back and forth for hours um, when he was off work. And I have always loved uh, a real competitive mindset, not necessarily with other people or teams, but just competing with myself, wanting to set goals that are bigger than the last and putting in the effort to actually see them materialize. When I was in my early 20s, late teens, during the college years, I didn't do much with sports or, or fitness. You, you know, you get sidetracked with school and then your career starts. And so then in my 30s, that's really when I had a, a turning point in life. When I was 32, I was diagnosed with, with cancer. And so after successfully, you know, working through that and regaining my health and thankfully, you know, have been 13 years cancer-free as a survivor, after that, I really thought, I have gotten a second chance here. Let's make the most of this life that I have left. And part of doing that was not only, you know, reconnecting relationships with people, really looking at my work-life balance, but it was also looking at, you know, hey, I can still be a competitor when it comes to something tied to sports. So I started out running some 5Ks, and then from there, uh, you know, I had always loved to swim, but was never a great swimmer. Took some swimming lessons, thought, hey, biking, got myself a new and better bike. And So you took swimming lessons mm-hmm. at mid thir- in your mid-30s? Yeah, you know, I'd taken yeah. them as a child and as a teen, but, you know, how, how much do you really focus on skill and technique? So so went back and did that. And so the fi- from the 5Ks, I graduated to, when I turned 40, I did the Soldier Field 10-mile run up in Chicago. And then I went to watch a friend of mine do the Chicago Triathlon one year, and I remember thinking, gosh, I could never do that. And then a couple years later, I thought to myself, why not? Why can't I? Let's focus on this goal and work at it, and and let's make make it happen. So it was that inner competitor. It was wanting to, um, you know, make the most of this, this life I have and the great health I now enjoy. And, you know, the triathlon just meant so much more than physically crossing that, that finish line. Um, it, it was just a real celebration of accomplishment of, again, the healthy life, looking and, and seeing my parents and family and friends, the togetherness of that. Uh, so, yeah, just really proud of that and proud to – when we look at people on days like triathlons or marathons, it, those bring out the best in people. Not only the athletes, but the supporters on the sideline, the people who make that event happen. The best examples of humanity, in my opinion, come out at events like that. Everyone is supportive of each other on those days, and it's a great observation. Oh, I think you're spot on. How? Um, so you swam in Lake Michigan then? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what was that like? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I had done a couple of swim clinics in Lake Michigan. Since I don't live in Chicago, I didn't have lots of opportunity to practice. Getting in the water, it's it's overwhelming. I mean, those waves, they're, they're fierce. And so a day where there were 16-mile-an-hour winds, I mean, in the water, it feels so much faster. So it was, 
I got in the water. At first, it's a little overwhelming. You're surrounded by people. You don't want to get kicked in the head. <laughs> um, so you're trying to keep yourself safe. It's a good strategy, not and get kicked in the head. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and that actually happened, but you know, it was more <laughs> startling than it was painful. Mm-hmm. I, I rebounded. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was just, a, though, getting in the water and having this sense of determination, I'm going to finish. My two big goals are always have fun and finish. And I was determined to get to the end of that swim, no matter what it took, no matter if my technique was a little off or so the determination to get there. Mm-hmm. Oh, very inspiring story. Thank you. <laughs> well, speaking of determination, maybe let's wrap up with where do you see in, in terms of goals and determination? Mm-hmm. You know, you've done such a great job of leading the Aging Studies program. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this program in two or three years down the road? What do you anticipate for changes? What's happening in the field? And how is, how is your graduate program going to continue to innovate? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely see the enrollment continuing to grow. We have enjoyed a steady growth over the last few years, and so that will definitely continue. I envision more community collaborations. We have some solid partnerships in place right now, and we'll, we'll grow those. We will expand our student demographics um, to reach further beyond Illinois. And we'll continue to keep up with the, the trends of trying to support older adults aging in place, um, looking at, at older adults not as a special can't-do population, but looking at the capabilities they still have and, and how we can best learn so we can then turn around and, and maximize those and support their families and, and caregivers. So, so definitely growth. Um, in enrollment and, and innovation and other departments on campus too I think will we'll be on board I think we'll add to that six we already have and and it will grow we already have elective classes in political science biological sciences sociology so I can know. see that mm-hmm. happening in your field mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. more um, interdisciplinary cl- collaboration that seems like a very very high probability as the graduate program moves forward mm-hmm. definitely well, do we have anything else? Thanks for having me on here. What a pleasure it was to talk about, you know, some of my favorite things, not just professionally, but, but personally as well. And I, I'd like to say thank you for all of the support you and other administrators at EIU have given to Aging Studies. Uh, it's incredible to feel that sense of support and belief in a program. It helps me to remember that the efforts are worthwhile. Uh, we're being responsive to the needs of students. And then in terms of the, the personal kinds of things that you asked about, like the triathlon, you know, that sense of work-life balance, I can't stress that enough, not only for my colleagues, but I try to model that for students as well. So let's hang on to that work-life balance uh, as well. That's a very nice way to conclude. Thank you for being on EIU Innovate. It's fascinating, and keep up the great work, and uh, really appreciate having you. I also want to thank Dr. Tom Grissom, who as always, has been our producer and makes EIU Innovate happen. Thank you.